Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we, we are, are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another Haunted Happy Hour. And in this one, we're going to talk about some lady killers. But I don't mean gross men. I mean <laughs> women that killed. Usually men. Actually, I have one woman that killed other women. So. Interesting. I don't know about you, but. And I actually have a woman that killed. Actually, only one of my women killed men. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's not actually true, but we're going to talk about women killers because, you know, like most men are serial killers, but I actually don't even know if that's true. I think that women just get away with it more. Right. Especially because women tend to do like poisoning and stuff where it's easily, you know, not traceable. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, just had a heart attack. I think exactly. it's easy to play like a weeping widow. You know what I mean? Yes. Unless you've done it like 12 times, which some of these women have, and that's how they get caught. Yeah. You're real suspicious. You know, <laughs> if you're going to keep doing it, like move countries or something. Right. Exactly. But before we start, we also have a birthday today, and it is my husband's birthday, and he is also one of our patrons. So happy birthday, Connor. Yeah. Happy birthday, Connor. I was supposed to give him a playlist. Okay. And listen, listen. <laughs> I still am working on it, but I took this on like, yeah, that'll be fun. And then I got so stressed out. You know how like, <laughs> you know, like back in the day, it was like making a mixtape or a mix CD. You and you got to have the perfect one. Dude, it has to be perfect. <laughs> and I'm so I'm stuck on like these same like 12 to 14 songs and I want it to be like 20 plus, but I'm so picky about every song that goes on there. Even though I like the song, I'm like, no, because like, what if he doesn't like it? And what if he judges me for what I put on there? <laughs> I get it. So it. I'm like, okay, I'll just send it to him as it is and tell him it's a work in progress. But I'm like, no, it needs to be a whole listening experience. And it needs to be perfect. I get you. From start totally to finish. <laughs> and if he doesn't like one song, it messes up the whole experience. Oh, no. Yeah, that'd be terrible. So he doesn't get it yet. <laughs> I'll let him know. Thank you. Maybe I'll have it finished today on his birthday. Who knows? Maybe that'll yeah, be his birthday present. Birthday present. Yeah. If you want me to make you a playlist, don't because I'm really bad at it <laughs> or take forever. or really good at it. And then by the right. time you get it, it's a banger. Exactly. Yeah. And he will have forgotten that I even asked. So he'll be like, this is fucking badass. And be like, wow, she did it. <laughs> like, I'm a great friend. Exactly. It just takes me two months to do the thing. Anyways. So we're talking about lady killers and. So I have one, like a lot of them are like on Murderpedia and Wikipedia. And like, I have one that might be like a little all over the place because she doesn't actually have a Wikipedia page or anything because Ooh. she has like a thing on like snapped and like investigative discovery, but it's still kind of like up in the air. Like nobody's dedicated a Wikipedia page to her yet. So it's kind of an interesting case. So this lady is named Kelly M. Cochran. So... She killed her husband by intentionally overdosing him with heroin, but they believe, oh. yeah. So the reason that she may be a serial killer is because they think she's linked to nine other, or like nine deaths total. But with like, heroin? Th they can't prove any, <laughs> okay. So Cochran pleaded guilty in April and this was back in 2018. So this was June, 2018. So in April, 2018, she pleaded guilty to the death of her husband, Jason Cochran, at their home in Indiana. They say Kelly told investigators she killed her husband because he took the only good thing in her life in Reagan's death. 
So in an, like investigative discovery did this whole thing about this and they described her like the devil in court, you know, cause investigative discovery is real dramatic. Mm-hmm. We love them, but you know, they're, <laughs> you know, they got to play it up. She could have just been like, you know, not looking at the cameras cause she didn't want the press and they're like the devil's eyes, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So Reagan disappeared in 2014. Iron River Police Chief Lauren, excuse me, Laura Frizo, who investigated Reagan's disappearance, said she met Cochran and her husband during the probe. Court documents stated the investigator learned Cochran was having an affair with Reagan, but the case went cold until Jason Cochran died in February 2016 of a suspected overdose. Cochran admitted to prosecutors that she and her husband lured Reagan inside their home, shot him and dismembered him before dumping his remains in the woods. Okay, so there's two men here. Oh, geez. One got dismembered. One got OD'd. Okay. God dang. Cochran said she and her husband made a pact on their wedding night to kill off anyone involved in their extramarital affairs. I mean, you know. Whoa. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. What kind of pact? You guys loyalty were pact. Hell, weren't you? <laughs> it's a loyalty pact. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, I cheated on you. Well, we got to kill him. Like, yeah. like, I'll help you out. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> God. Cochran's own brother, Colton Cobian, told investigators he feared his sister was a serial killer and neighbors said they believed they were served human remains Ew, what? at a barbecue. <laughs> Ew. One friend wow. who participated in the documentary also described eating a strange tasting burger without realizing at the time it could have been human. He's like, she's just a really bad cook. <laughs> this thing is charred as fuck. <laughs> In February 2016, when Jason died of an apparent heroin overdose, the Reagan case was reopened. So the guy they dismembered was reopened when her husband died. Michigan authorities charged Cochran with Reagan's death, but she fled the state. The U.S. Marshal Service. Why don't I hear about this shit when it's happening? Right? Maybe I'm just don't pay attention, but. Yeah. This like dismembered human (laughs) remains served at a barbecue. Like, come on. The U.S. Marshal Service eventually tracked her down in Kentucky, where she was arrested and taken into custody. Court documents revealed Cochran spent her time in jail turning her glasses into shanks and threatening to commit suicide. <laughs> this lady's crazy. I'm starting you off with a fun one here. I know. <laughs> as well as bodily harm to anyone who came near her. After Reagan was killed, Kelly said she was angry at her husband. She said she gave him a lethal overdose of heroin and then choked him until he died. She said she killed him out of revenge for killing Reagan. So... She killed her husband because she was mad that he killed who she had an affair with, even though they had a pact to do that. And she was involved in the killing, allegedly, of the other dude. What the fuck? Like, just turn your pack around. Go with the dude you had an affair with and be like, hey, let's kill my husband. That's what most wives do. Right. <laughs> or nobody kill anybody and just divorce just him. Get a and- divorce? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I know. <laughs> During Cochran's sentencing for Reagan's death, Reagan's ex-girlfriend, Terry O'Donnell, testified that she knew he had gone missing but wasn't prepared for the discovery of his brutal death. No kidding. The first time I saw Cochran was in the courthouse, she said. I just remember her staring at me and grinning. I took a deep breath and thought she was the scariest person I've ever seen. I couldn't look at her for the rest of the time I was testifying. She just sat there and grinned. You know, I'm not saying that that's not true, but I also feel like (laughs) You just, if you know somebody killed someone you love, they're just going to be the devil to you. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But I'm not saying that didn't happen. She very well could be like, fucking, you know what I mean? Like, Jesus. I mean, she sounds pretty, pretty cray cray. So yeah. 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 
Cochran directed Michigan authorities to a site where parts of the rifle used to shoot Reagan were found, as well as 22 caliber bullets. Human remains were also discovered, including a skull with an apparent bullet hole. A pair of eyeglasses believed to belong to Reagan were nearby. O'Donnell insisted Reagan's murder was not the first for the Cochrans. I do not think that Chris is the first person they murdered, she explained. There's just no way that the first person you choose to kill, you're going to be able to clean up the blood and get rid of the bodies that the FBI agents can't pull DNA off the walls to do what the, they did to him. I don't know how you could do that if that was the first person you've ever murdered. That's a good fucking point. Yeah. Like, true that. Shooting someone, <laughs> that's one thing. You can be far away, pull out your gun, and it's done. But to sit there, take a cut-up body, and then to wrap its parts, put it in your vehicle, and haul it over to the woods and bury it, there's no possible way you could logically think through all that. I truly believe there are other people out there. Cochran's family told investigators she may have killed as many as nine people and buried their bodies throughout the Midwest. Her family said that. Oh, my God. They were they were like, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, for <laughs> what is she, why were they like, huh, nine people? Who were the people they were like? Guy, oh, yeah, that guy, guy went missing. Yeah, like all the, yeah you I know, haven't seen Uncle Charlie in a while. They're <laughs> counting them on their fingers, you know what I mean? Like, it's not funny, but also it's like, fuck, you know what I mean? Right. Cochran cannot be prosecuted in Indiana for any additional murders. That was part of her plea deal on Jason's death. If she provides locations of other victims, she can do so and not face additional charges in Indiana. She claimed to have other friends buried in Indiana, Michigan, Tennessee, and Minnesota. However, the identities and specific location of these bodies remain a mystery to this day. Y'all need to be careful who you cheating with. Yes. <laughs> you know how it's like, if they'll cheat on you, on their husbands, they'll cheat on you. And it's like, oh, if they cheat and they may kill you. Like, <laughs> you just never know. Cochran was sentenced to life in prison without parole in May 2017 for Reagan's murder. She will serve an additional 65 years in prison for the murder of Jason in Indiana. God dang. Starting off with a bang on that one. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> None of my other ones are that fun. So prepare to be disappointed. Hey, that's how I am. My first one is uh, fun, probably not so much, but I don't like you can't make this shit up. It's great. So my first one is Christine Laverne Slaughter. That was literally the name she was born with. Slaughter. I have always wished my last name was Slaughter because when I was growing up as like a little goth emo kid, I was like, that's badass. <laughs> oh, I totally get it. My mom grew up as a military brat and one of the families that they traveled around with their last name was dragon and i'm like that's fucking badass i would love that name i just got lee like l-e-e <laughs> like <laughs> you're like it's so lame yeah like at least you got something that's unique like mm. yeah and then you marry into christian which is like smith like uh, yeah right, right? yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay christine laverne slaughter was the youngest child in an unusual family her father, Thomas, was 65 years old at the time of her birth, while her mother, Anne, was, at the age of 16, still a minor. The family um, was... <laughs> yeah. Ew. Ah, uh, correct. Yeah, absolutely. The family was below the poverty line, and Christine did not receive the necessary early childhood support. Because of this, she was considered mentally challenged. She also suffered from epilepsy. When her parents could no longer afford to support her, and also because of ongoing arguments between them, Christine spent some of her childhood and youth in various orphanages. 
She compensated for her insecurities and pent-up anger by killing small animals, especially domestic cats, at an early age. In order to test their nine lives, as she later justified her actions, she often caused the animals to fall from heights. Jesus In September fuck. 19... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In September 1977, the 14-year-old Christine was forced by her parents to marry a 20-year-old man named Goober Fowling. Okay, so we didn't learn that a 16-year-old <laughs> marrying an adult was not a good idea, so we're going to make our kids do it? Yes. Bro. We're going to make her name marry a man named goober why do you do this i'm a goofy goober (laughs) but the marriage which resulted in almost daily quarrels and altercations ended in divorce after only six weeks after that no kidding (laughs) that's basically (laughs) just an annulment right yeah right i'm pretty sure yeah after that she became seriously ill in the next two years she had to be hospitalized 50 times she suffered from hallucinations complained of red dots that appeared before her eyes and menstrual reading bleeding at irregular levels at the age of 16 she was diagnosed as incapacitated on medical instructions in order to make money fowling began working as a babysitter for neighbors and friends on february 25th wait 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 incapacitated medically so we're gonna let her watch kids Uh uh-huh okay cool continue proceed On February 25th, 1980, two-year-old Cassidy Johnson was sent to a doctor's office in Blenstown, Florida. She was diagnosed with meningitis caused by traumatic brain injuries. Three days later, the girl died from internal injuries. Christine Felling, who had been babysitting for her, said that Cassidy had fallen out of her crib. The attending physician did not believe Felling and and recommended on a police notepad to check Christine. However, this note was lost on its way to the police department. No fucking way. Shortly after the death of Cassidy Johnson, Fowling moved to Lakeland, Florida. Two months later, in early summer 1980, four-year-old Jeffrey Davis died while under her supervision. The autopsy pointed to myocarditis as the cause of death. However, the doctors doubted whether this alone had caused Jeffrey's death. Three days later, his funeral took place, and Fowling was asked to oversee her cousin, two-year-old Joseph Spring. He died a few hours later, doctors diagnosing a viral infection. Mm. Yeah. In July 1981, Fowling left Lakeland and returned to her hometown of Perry in northern Florida. As few families wanted to entrust their children to her care, she began to work as a nursing assistant for seniors. 77-year-old William Swindle died in his kitchen on the same day that Fowling had started caring for him. So we go on from killing kids (laughs) to the elderly. Why Uh, are we entrusting anyone to this person's care? Right? They're like, we're not going to let her take care of our kids, but how about our old people? Exactly. I mean, God, the 80s were like the Wild West sometimes. Jesus. No kidding. In the fall of the same year, the daughter of Christine's half-sister, eight-month-old Jennifer Daniels, died. While Christine's half-sister had gone to the supermarket, she left her daughter with Christine for a few moments in the car, during which time the girl stopped breathing. Doctors suspected sudden infant death syndrome to be the cause of death. The turning point of the enigmatic death streak was the t- was the death of 10-week-old Travis Coleman, who died on July 2, 1982, while Christine was taking care of him in Bluntstown. At the autopsy, the doctors found internal injuries that only could have been caused by suffocation. When the police contacted Fowling, she confessed to murdering three of the children because she had heard voices telling her to kill the baby. She had suffocated the children with pillows and blankets. 
Christine Fowling was sentenced to life imprisonment on in December 1982 and her confession preventing her from getting the death penalty. After serving 25 years in prison, Fowling was eligible for pl- parole. Her application for parole was rejected by the Parole Review Board in November 2017 and no and no one supporting Fowling attended her parole hearing. She will be giving another hearing hearing in 7 years. Fowling is imprisoned at the Homestead Correctional Institution in Homestead, Florida. Huh. Finally, at least the parole board was like, nah, you ain't doing it again. You know, we're not going to let you, like, keep killing kids. I do feel bad if she's, like, truly mentally ill. You know, like, I think that mental illness can play a huge part, especially if it's schizophrenia. Like, I think that the system fails people a lot. Mm-hmm. But also, if stop, you know, they were like, man, kids keep dying. How about taking care of older people? Right. I feel like that was just a huge failure on all all parts there. Absolutely. Speaking of dead babies. Jesus. Trigger warning. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's not funny. But this could be somebody. This person in pop culture is said to have possibly inspired Annie Wilkes. So do with that information what you will, which is from Stephen King's Misery, if you don't know that. This is Janine Jones. So Janine Ann Jones was born July 13th, 1950, and is responsible for the deaths of possibly up to 60 infants and children in her care as a licensed vocational nurse. During the 1970s and 1980s. Jones was adopted by a nightclub owner and his wife, and she worked as a beautician before attending nursing school in the late 1970s. Jones married her high school sweetheart, which is only cute until you start thinking about the fact that she's a baby killer, between (laughs) 1968 and 1974, and they had one child during that time. The relationship ended in divorce. Three years later, Jones and her husband reconciled and had another child together in 1977. Just before her indictment, she married a 19-year-old nursing assistant. He filed a divorce a short time later. While Jones worked as a licensed vocational nurse or an LVN at Bexar County Hospital, which is now University Hospital in San Antonio, in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, a statistically improbable number of children died under her care. Because the hospital feared being sued, it asked all of its LVNs, including Jones, to resign and staffed the pediatric ICU exclusively with registered nurses or RNs. No further investigation was pursued by the hospital. They were just like, you know what? Everyone quit. Get out. (laughs) It's got to be one of you motherfuckers. How about y'all all leave? It'll be fine after that. And it was. Which... That drives me nuts because if it was fine after that, one of those people was killing babies and you didn't do anything about it. You just turned them loose. Exactly. Just let them go to kill more children. So Jones left and took a position at a pediatrics clinic in Kerrville, Texas, 60 miles northwest of San Antonio. It was here that she was charged with poisoning six children. The doctor in the office discovered two puncture marks and a bottle of uh, succimethanium. Woo. Somebody's going to be mad and be like, oh my God, that's not how you say that. <laughs> Succimethonium chloride in the drug storage where only she and Jones had access. 
which is where she fucked up. Like, obviously the doctor is going to be like, hmm, wow, this is weird. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm, I'm super glad she got caught, but like critical thinking, you know, <laughs> contents of the apparently full bottle were later found to be heavily diluted with water where it was estimated that only 20% of the vial's contents were actually that drug. That drug is a powerful, short-acting paralytic that causes temporarily temporary paralysis of all skeletal muscles, as well as those that control breathing. The drug is used as a part of general anesthetic. A patient cannot breathe while under the influence of this drug. In small children, cardiac arrest is the ultimate result of deoxygenation due to the lack of respiration. Jones claimed she was trying to stimulate the creation of a pediatric intensive care unit in the clinic whoa i know nobody wants your help with that no in 1985 jones was sentenced to 99 years in prison for killing 15 month old chelsea mcclellan with the drug later that year she was sentenced to a concurrent term of 60 years in prison for nearly killing rolando santos with heparin as of May 2016, Jones was held at Lane Murray Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. She had been scheduled for mandatory release in 2018 due to a Texas law meant to prevent prison overcrowding. To avoid this, Jones was indicted on May 25, 2017 for the murder of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer. Nico LaHood, Bexar County District Attorney, stated that additional charges could be filed in the deaths of other children. Due to the mandatory early release law covering Jones's original convictions, she would otherwise have been released upon completion of a third of the original sentence. The new charges were filed to avoid her release. Uh, good. Right. Yeah. She will not be eligible parole until she is roughly 87 years old. Yep. That's actually really interesting. So if you Google this person, there is a magazine article from the 80s that comes up that is archived online. Not that like it's cool that she did that, but (laughs) and it's actually a, a magazine that I recognized so well because my parents got it every single month growing up. It's Texas Monthly and the article came out August 1983 and they called it The Death Shift. And Mm -hmm. yeah, but, and you can see like the cover of the magazine and it's the August 1983 issue and they have a picture of her from the eighties and it talks about their entire, like it's a, you know, a narrative story and and not like the one I just read. Like it was like one morning in October, 1981, after finishing up the overnight nursing shift in the pediatric ICU at Bexar County hospital. And it talks about like the, her bosses and the people she worked with and their perspective of her. It's actually a really interesting article. It's very, very long, which is why I didn't read it, but it's really interesting. So just if anybody's interested, it's called the death shift Texas monthly from August, 1983. Okay. My next one is Lizzie Halliday. Lizzie Halliday, originally Eliza Margaret McNeely was born around 1859 in County Antrim, Ireland. Her family moved to the U.S. when she was young, given as aged three or eight, in 1879. Lizzie married in Greenwich, New York, man known by the alias Charles Hopkins, when his real name was Ketspool Brown. They are said to have had one son who ended up institutionalized. In 1881, after Hopkins' death, she married pensioner Artemis Brewer, but he also died less than a year later. Her third husband, Hiram Parkinson, left her within their first year of marriage. Lizzie went on to marry George Smith, a war veteran who had served with Brewer. 
After a reported failed attempt to kill Smith by putting arsenic in his tea, Lizzie fled to Bellows Falls, Vermont. She married Vermont resident Charles Playstell, but she vanished two weeks later. In winter of 1888, Lizzie resurfaced in Philadelphia, where she turned up at a saloon on 1218 North Front Street that was run by the McQuellens, friends she knew from Ireland. Going by the name Maggie Hopkins, Lizzie set up shop, but was later convicted of burning it down for the insurance money. She was sentenced to two years at Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. In 1889, now going by the name Lizzie Brown, she became the housekeeper for Paul Halliday, a twice-widowed 70-year-old farmer living in Burlingham, New York, with his sons. Their marriage was marred by what Halliday described as Lizzie's sporadic spells of insanity. Within two years, the Halliday family's house and barn burned to the ground, and Lizzie was suspected of setting the fires. At some point, Lizzie stole a team of horses and had a neighbor help her drive them to Newburgh, New York, where she sold them. She was acquitted of the crime on the grounds of insanity. Accounts varying on this happening between 1890 or 1893. In 1891, the Halliday house was burned to the ground, killing Halliday's mentally handicapped son, John. Lizzie was again suspected of setting the fire since she was known to have disliked John. She claimed that he died trying to save her from the flames, but his bedroom door was detected in the rubble and was locked, and Lizzie was in possession of the key. Soon after, Lizzie burned down the Halliday farm and mill as well. She attempted to run off with another man, but she was arrested and sent to an asylum. She was transferred to another asylum, but was then declared cured and released, returning home to Halliday. Paul Halliday disappeared that August. Lizzie claimed he had gone to a nearby town to do masonry work. Following the neighbor's suspicions that something was not right about Lizzie's story, a search warrant was obtained on September 4th. The bodies of two women were found buried in hay in the barn. Both had been shot. The women were later identified as Margaret and Sarah McQuellen, New York residents who were part of the family Lizzie had stayed with in Philadelphia. Little could be ascertained from Lizzie as, when questioned, she behaved in an erratic manner, tearing at her clothes and talking incoherently. She was kept in custody, and some thought she was merely faking insanity. A few days after the McQuellans were found, Paul Halliday's mutilated body was discovered under the floorboards of his house. He had also been shot. Lizzie was charged with the murders and held for trial at the Sullivan County Jail in Monticello, New York. During her first few months there, she refused to eat, attacked the sheriff's wife, set fire to her own bed, tried to hang herself, and cut her own throat with broken glass, about which she said, I thought I would cut myself to see if I would bleed. Her jailers were forced to chain her to the floor during her remaining months there. While she was in jail, Lizzie received national attention with one sensational story after another appearing across the country in tabloid newspapers. The New York World portrayed Lizzie's case as unprecedented and almost without parallel in the annals of crime. She was also covered by the world's Nellie Bly, who eventually managed to get an interview with Lizzie in which she revealed her previous marriages, facts Bly was able to confirm. Another useful source for reporters was Robert Halliday, Paul Halliday's son. The Sullivan County Sheriff started a round of a new round of speculation when he told the press that Lizzie was probably connected to the Jack the Ripper murders, although no connection was ever made. The revelation that she had been married five times before she wed Paul Halliday, that two of her husbands died less than a year after their weddings, and that Lizzie had tried to poison a third, led the press to speculate that she was responsible for at least six deaths. Whether these men died natural deaths or were murdered is not known. 
The New York Times noted in June 1894, Lizzie also made a claim, confided to Robert Halliday, that she had killed a husband in Belfast, but had managed to conceal the crime. On June 21, 1894, Halliday was convicted at the Sullivan County Oyer and Terminer Court for the murder of Mar- Margaret McQuellen and Sarah Jane McQuellen. She became the first woman ever to be sentenced to death by electrocution via New York State's new electric chair. Governor Roswell P. Flower commuted her sentence to life in a mental institution for a medical commission declared her insane. Halliday was sent to the Mansweeton State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where she spent the remainder of her life. She had become a model patient, and she trust and she was trusted with sewing privileges, giving her access to tools, including scissors. She grew close to Nellie Wicks, one of the attendants at Mansweeton, but she was deeply upset by Wicks' plans to leave the institution. In 1906, she killed Wicks by stabbing her 200 times with a pair of scissors. Halliday died of Bright's disease on June 28, 1918, after spending nearly half her life in the asylum. 200 times, huh? 200 with a pair of scissors. That sounds so painful. Ugh, yeah. That's uh mm. Yeah, I kinda I mean not liked, but I kinda liked her because you don't really get women usually getting their hands dirty, but she like fucking dismembered people. Yeah, like, yeah, um, no, totally. And like not with the help of a man. Right, exactly. I don't need no man <laughs> right. to help me dismember a body. I got this. Uh, my last one here. So actually, my last one's like, she is the one that killed other women. Okay. And she basically, so her name is Dana Sue Gray. And she was born to a, in the 50s. On December 6, 1957, in Southern California, to Beverly and Russell Armbrust. And Russell was a hairdresser and had three previous marriages before marrying Beverly, who was a former beauty queen. They had several miscarriages before she was born. And Beverly was an aggressive, vain woman who frequently maxed out her husband's credit cards. And they finally divorced when her husband found her fighting with an older woman who pissed her off. So Dana Sue was only two years old when her parents divorced and afterwards rarely saw her father. So she began acting out to get attention. Whenever her mother would discipline her, Dana would retaliate by stealing money to buy candy and would occasionally fly into fits of violence. In school, she did not get along well with other students and poorly in all of her classes. And she was suspended from school many times for forging notes to get out of class. I mean, I skipped school a lot too, but you know, (laughs) I didn't get caught. That's where you fucked up. When Dana was 14, her mother developed breast cancer. Gray decided to become a nurse after watching hospital nurses take care of her mother. After her mother's death, Gray moved in with her father, but was forced to leave after her stepmother found drugs in her room. A few years later, she became involved with a skydiving instructor who got her pregnant twice, convinced her to terminate her pregnancies, which is something she resented. Dana graduated from Newport Harbor High School in 1976. She lived with her skydiving instructor, Rob, for the next several years, and he helped her with nursing school. She became an expert skydiver, and in 1981, she graduated from nursing school and for the next few years had an on-again, off-again relationship with a man named Chris Dodson, a windsurfer. 
Dana excelled in windsurfing, golf, skydiving. She took trips to Hawaii, did all these activities. And in October 1987, Gray married a man named Bill Gray at an upscale winery in the Temecula area. He was a fellow sports enthusiast who had known and admired her since high school. Dana was a serious athlete, very fit and beautiful with pretty blonde hair. The marriage quickly got into trouble, however, when Dana dug them deeply into debt. At this point, she was also estranged from her two half-brothers, having burned many bridges in a dispute over an aunt's will because of money. She was a labor and delivery nurse at Inland Valley Regional Medical Center. They lived in the gated community of Canyon Lake, where they had several business ventures under the name Gray Matter. Gray left her husband in early 1993 and moved in with their friend and her lover, Jim Wilkins, and his young son, Jason. In June 1993, she filed for divorce from Gray, though this was not finalized until after Dana had been in jail for quite some time. In September 93, she and Gray filed for bankruptcy to stave off foreclosure on their Canyon Lake house. Although the value of the house had greatly increased since they purchased it, they owed much more on the house than it was worth, even with all the equity, because she got them fucked up in debt. <laughs> on November 24th, 1993, she was fired from the hospital where she worked for misappropriating Demerol and other opiate painkillers. Jesus. Yeah, dude. On February 14th, 94, Dana sent word through Gray's parents, because Gray kept his phone number and address hidden from her, that she wanted to meet with her estranged husband. Gray initially agreed, but did not show up. And later that day, Dana murdered Norma Davis an elderly lady whose home Dana had shared for a time. Gray later found out that Dana had taken out an insurance policy on him. The policy would have paid off the Canyon Lake house in the event of Gray's death. So he probably would have been the victim, right? So her victims, right. Norma Davis, 86, is thought to be Gray's first victim. Because of the lack of evidence, however, Gray was never convicted of killing her. Norma was the mother-in-law of the woman, Jerry Davis, who married Dana's father in 1988. Jerry's first husband, Bill Davis, was Norma's son. Bill died in the early 1980s, and his widow eventually married Dana's father, Russell. Jerry continued to care for her elderly mother-in-law even after she remarried. Dana knew Norma very well. On February 16th, 1994, Norma Davis had been dead for two days when she was found by her neighbor, Alice Williams. So again, she was supposed to meet her husband on the 14th, and she, Norma had been dead for two days on the 16th. So I'm just, you know. Hmm. Davis had a wood-handled utility knife sticking out of her neck. And Jesus. A, yep. And a fillet knife sticking out of her chest. Other than a broken fingernail, she had no other marks. A bloodied Afghan lay at her feet. Detectives learned that there was no forced entry into the house. Detectives were informed that she always kept her door locked unless she was expecting a visitor. Williams stated she could not remember Davis mentioning that she was expecting company. Detectives found a Nike shoe print pointed toward the kitchen. They also found Davis's $148 social security check. On the first floor of Davis's condo, a smear of blood was found on an armchair. A ripped out phone cord was also found. Another victim, June Roberts. June Roberts, 66, was killed on February 28, 1994. June Roberts, like Norma Davis, lived in a gated community of Canyon Lake. Gray had visited Roberts one day, claiming she wanted to borrow a book about controlling a drinking problem. Roberts let Gray into her house. While Roberts searched for the book, Gray unplugged Roberts' phone, both the straight cord and the curly cord. She then used the curly cord to strangle Roberts. When Roberts was dead, Gray rifled through her credit cards, stealing two of them. 
An hour later, Gray went on a massive shopping spree at an upscale shopping center in Temecula. Dorinda Hawkins. Gray attacked Hawkins, 57, at her job at an antique store. Hawkins had been working alone that day. Gray came in to buy a picture frame for a photo of her deceased mother. Gray strangled her with a telephone cord. Gray took $5 from Hawkins' purse and $20 from the cash register. All for $25. An hour later, Gray went on another shopping spree using Robert's credit card. Again, the other victim. So she killed this woman for $25. Hawkins had survived the assault. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did not kill. Assaulted. Almost killed. Tried to kill. Hawkins had survived the assault, however, and was able to give detectives a description of Gray. The next day, the story was in the newspaper. Dora Beebe. Beeb? I don't know. B-E-E-B-E. On March 16th, 1994, so this all happened within a month, pretty much, Gray killed Dora Beeb, 87. A few minutes after she came home from a doctor's appointment, Gray pulled up in front of Dora's house. Gray knocked on Dora's door and asked Dora for directions. Dora invited Gray inside to look at a map. Once inside, Gray attacked and killed Dora. Dora was found later that day by her boyfriend of eight years. Lewis Dormand. An hour later, Gray used Dora's credit card to go on a shopping spree. Many of the residents of Canyon Lake were terrified. Some moved in with loved ones until the murder was solved. A group of elderly widows began sleeping in big rooms at designated houses every night. There was a rotation. Mm, I I know. They believed there was safety in numbers. Which is why you didn't get killed because you watched the horror movies. Many residents residents theorized the murders were committed by a cult who engaged Satanic panic in the 80s, man. Carried Mm -hmm. into the 90s. Many residents theorized the murders were committed by a cult who engaged in ritual sacrifice. Detectives had ritualistic. (laughs) What the fuck? Detectives had problems finding suspects early on. At one point, it was so hard to find a lead that the supervisor in charge recommended using a psychic. Before Dana Gray was thought to be the serial killer, detectives had few other suspects. In the case of Norma Davis, detectives suspected Jerry Armbrust might be the killer. From talking to Armbrust, detectives learned that she used to be married to Davis's son. After Norma Davis's son died, Jerry continued to care for her former mother-in-law. When Jerry remarried, it was to Russell Armbrust, Dana Gray's father, thus the connection to Norma Davis. Davis was in very poor health and was still recovering from a triple bypass surgery. Detectives found it was strange that Jerry would take care of someone who was not a blood relative. God forbid someone be a good person. Right. And she was wearing Nikes. Detectives (laughs) also speculated that Jerry had been in Davis's house the Sunday before the murder. Jerry claimed she only stopped by Davis's house to drop off groceries and heard Davis's TV on upstairs, but did not go upstairs to say hi. She just left the groceries and went home. Detectives wondered why she would not say hello. After weeks of talking with her and building a rapport, Detective Greco realized she was not the person they were looking for. Detective Greco and Jerry became friends and began helping each other during the investigation. Ultimately, it was this friendship that would lead to a pivotal point in the case. Gray was finally caught because her description was obtained from various merchants in the Temecula, California area where she used June Roberts credit cards to go on a shopping spree. That is the dumbest shit, first of all, if I may interject here real quickly. (laughs) You kill someone and then use their credit cards like they're not going to figure out where the credit cards were used. Pull the security footage because there was security footage in the 90s. We had VHS Mm -hmm. tapes. You know what I mean? Like, right. 
and then figure out who is using those credit cards. You dumb idiot. (laughs) Dana had been spending so much money that the credit card company called June's family to alert them of the massive spending. Also that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They know you like your credit card companies know your spending habits. The detectives then went to all the stores where Gray used the credit cards and interviewed the cashiers, getting a physical description of Gray. They also learned the killer had dyed her hair recently and had a little boy named Jason. Detective Grayco kept in touch with Jerry Armburst. He began providing the description of the killer to her on a visit to her home. Jerry would reveal to Greco the next day that she believed the suspect to be her stepdaughter. Dana had just dyed her hair and had a boyfriend with a son named Jason. The detective wrote a search warrant for Gray's home and enlisted the help of allied Riverside County narcotics enforcement team to stake out Gray's home. And unbeknownst to the team, Gray was murdering Dora just hours before they began following her, trying to collect evidence. After seeing Dana go to the bank with Dora's credit card and then go shopping, the detectives had enough information for Nexus involving Dora's murder. Later that day, Greco arrested Dana while she was cooking dinner for her family. Detective Greco took Dana into custody while assisting officers took her boyfriend and his son down to the station for questioning. During questioning, Dana claimed she never took the credit cards. After detectives said they had evidence of her using them, Dana claimed she found both Robert's and Dora's cards. She stuck with the story for hours. She claimed the reason she kept the cards was she had an overwhelming need to shop. She also seemed to have no sympathy for the victims. Of course not. Clearly, she had (laughs) no symptom. For four years, Gray maintained she was innocent by reason of insanity. Then, on the eve of her trial, she abruptly agreed to plead guilty to all the charges, averting almost certain execution in exchange for a life sentence without the chance of parole. Like, fuck (laughs) that lady. Yeah. No. Wow. What a fucking bitch. Yeah. Poor little ladies. That poor woman that lived like she worked part-time in that antique store and the framing shop she watched her wander around look at old frames and kind of looked at her she had no idea what she was doing she said she struggled to breathe pulled at the rope asked the woman what she was doing what she wanted like major ptsd she kicked at her attacker tried to ease the pressure of whatever was strangling her but the woman knew what she was doing she said She was strong despite her size. She managed to avoid being thrown off, even if she had not anticipated such resistance, and she regained her advantage, never letting go of of what was strangling her. Using her full weight, she pulled on it to make it tight and enough to cause she lost consciousness, and I guess she thought that she was dead because she left her there. Fucking A. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, she took advantage of people being home alone, you know. So, and also the fact that she's a woman coming to another Mm -hmm. woman's house. Exactly. You know, like made her scarier. Ain't nobody getting into my house. I don't care (laughs) who you are, what you look like. Because then also, even if it's like, I know this sounds really bad, but if it's like a crying, sobbing woman, like screaming for help, they've been used to get in there. You know what I mean? Like, like that's like the, and the premise of the strangers. Like, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yep. Yep. Nope. 
Well, if you have any favorite lady killers that we didn't talk about and that are really interesting, let us know. I remember one, I was listening to a Bailey Sarian episode on YouTube. Do you know who that is? Do not. You would like her. She talks about true crime, puts on makeup on YouTube. <laughs> awesome. But she was talking about someone back in the day, like the 1800s or like the right, very beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I don't remember. Somebody okay. really old, right? So <laughs> she got really super mad jealous about a lover and sent his family or something like chocolates laced with arsenic and like killed all of them. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like a woman scorned, bro. <laughs> right. Like, for real. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us for this <laughs> haunted happy hour we appreciate you being here as always and happy birthday to connor and tell him i said hi yes i will and until next time stay creepy